Today's reading is Matthew 7, 13 through 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are Ravenous wolves who, are, who would recognize them by their fruits are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as the one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alicia. She had a big job today. That was a lot of scripture to go through. Uh, no, seriously, I'm a public speaking instructor in my spare, in my spare time. Uh, I teach a couple classes at some local universities, and uh, usually the thing that I always harp on with my students is to have a narrow topic, like you rise and fall on your topic being either too broad or too narrow. And it was funny because as I was approaching this passage this week, I'm like, Alex, this is too much scripture to cover. I'm breaking my cardinal rule. Uh, but we wanted to make sure that we were able to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount as we head into Easter. Uh, because as a church, we kind of follow the church calendar. And uh, we want to follow kind of what most of the church around the world follows, right? And so uh, beginning to celebrate with Easter and then our Easter tide. So I I get the privilege of giving you a ton of scripture today and unpacking it all in hopefully a really clear and concise way. Uh, but as I begin, I want to take a few moments for us to summarize where we began, at, where we've been during the Sermon on the Mount and kind of where we are heading to as we wrap it up here. So we're actually going to start all the way back. The first verse that we uh, discussed together as a congregation, and that was Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. 
It says, Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds. He climbed a hillside. Those that were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. And thus, we have been in the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, chapters five through seven, since the inception of Midtown Church, since our official launch in September. So I took I want to take some time to remind us as to where we started, because there's some really cool things that Matthew is doing throughout his book. So if you don't know, Matthew, which is the presumed author of the Sermon on the Mount, is a literary genius, and I'm going to tell you why, okay? So the book of Matthew was written in a way to mimic the five teachings of the Torah, so the five books of the Torah, and the teachings that existed in Deuteronomy. So this is kind of like a dream within a dream within a dream. So follow me here, okay? It's like five by five by five. So Matthew has five parts to his gospel. They are mimicking the five books of the Torah, which were Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Within his five teachings, not only do they mimic the Torah, but they also mimic the five teachings that Moses gave in Deuteronomy as he was descending from Mount Sinai. So here's the really, really cool thing about this entire book, about this particular passage, about the Sermon on the Mount. It's no mistake that Jesus climbs up to the top of a hillside to give this sermon. It's as if he's saying, I am the new Moses, like the one that ascended from Mount Sinai as I ascend to this hilltop. I'm the new Moses. I am giving you a new Torah. You are the new Israel or the people of God. That's us. And I am teaching you a new kingdom. That's cool. Jesus is setting up for us a new way about thinking about life in general. So remember, we've been asking you to keep three things in mind when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. And that first one is that Jesus is teaching us what life in this new kingdom looks like, right? So that's what he's been doing throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, being a new Moses, teaching a new people about this new Torah, right? And then secondly, we've been asking you to keep in mind that the Sermon on the Mount is not an isolated speech, but rather it's the personification or the person of Jesus himself. Now go with me all the way to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. See, we're just really going full circle here. End of Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 29. When Jesus concluded this address, the crowd burst into applause They had never heard teachings like this. It was apparent that he was living everything that he was saying. He was living everything that he was saying. This lets us know that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus, and Jesus embodies the Sermon on the Mount. So by better understanding the Sermon on the Mount as a community, we have come to better understand the person of Jesus himself. Way to go. That's where you've come from. Uh, So as we approach here, the end of Jesus' teaching, he gives us a very sober call to action in the form of three warnings. But before we get there, we have to remember our last thing, the last thing that we've been trying to keep in mind in regards to the Sermon on the Mount. 
And that is that we have to practice imagination as we work to apply the Sermon on the Mount, written in first century, to our 21st century context. So go with me here. We're going to use our imagination. Uh, You know, I am a public speaking instructor, as I just said, and one of the things I drill into my students is to have a call to action. And you would think, after telling them over and over and over and over again about the importance of a call to action, they would all include one. But nay, no, they do not. And here's why, okay? First of all, some people just forget and they don't prepare, right? Okay, some of you are like, yeah, I was that student. Um, The second reason, though, is that we have a really hard time telling people what we want them to do in response to the information that we've given them. You know, as a pastor, one of the hardest things to do when writing a sermon, and for those of you that have done something like this in the past, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to come up with something for people to do in response to what you have to say. It's really hard sometimes. You know, I think as people generally, we have a hard time putting into words how we want people to act. Neil Postman, uh, a sociologist, a uh, philosopher, uh, knew this about human nature, and he went on a hunt to figure out why. And he wrote this book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a fascinating book. I have not read it all because if I'm being honest, it's really technical. It's a little bit of a bore, but he has some fascinating concepts in there, okay? And one of which is called the information to action ratio. Simply put, he says that information becomes important because it has the potential to create action. So information is important because it can create action. However, he argues that the tie between information and action has been severed because of the globalization of our society, specifically dating, he dates it all the way back to the telegraph. And some of you are like, I don't even remember what that was. Uh, That's okay, you shouldn't because it existed most likely, it should everyone before you were born. Um, But here's the thing, the telegraph was a device that for the very first time utilized in World War I allowed us to take information and to push it all the way across the world almost in immediate time. We had never been able to do that before. And because for the first time we could transmit information all the way across the world and then person over could get it almost instantaneously, we had severed the tie between information and action. I'm going to give two examples to illustrate this, okay? So here's my first example. Prior to the telegraph being invented, okay, let's say I'm a farmer. And for some of you, I know this is going to be really hard to imagine because if you know me, I cannot be any more or less like a farmer. But let's say that I am a farmer in Kansas, okay, farmer in Kansas. I am just tilling away at the soil, whatever that means. I have no idea. And as I am farming, okay, my neighbor, Bess, from the following farm over, she gets on her horse, she rides over to my property, and she says, uh, Cassie, which that's probably wouldn't have been my name, but Cassie, uh, Joe's house is on fire. She gives me this information. I intake this information, and my immediate thought is, okay, I need to gather supplies. I need to go tell my family, and we're going to go and help Joe set out the fire. The information that was given to me by Bess led me to immediately act, right? Fast forward to a real-life example that's a lot more believable. Um, (laughs) That 
would have occurred, right, prior to the telegraph being invented, prior to, or excuse me, after our globalization as a society. I'm sitting in my living room. I turn on the television or uh, more applicably, I open my phone. I open Instagram, right? And I see a woman being carried out of a Ukrainian hospital that's just been bombed. This is a real life example, right? We all saw the image. My heart is immediately so sad, right? I may cry a little bit. I may throw up an angry couple of words to God as I hear about her subsequent death. But I cannot physically act on that information in that moment. I can't treat that woman or her family like I would a member of this congregation because I'm separated by time and space. No longer is the information that I've received linked with action that I can do. This illustrates the detangling or the severed link between information and action. And although this severed link is not always a bad thing, it does precondition us to do nothing when we're given information. To simply just sit by as the information has been given to us. Unfortunately, this, in not a great way, has seeped into our church culture. For years, the commonplace thought has been, if I can simply get people to hear my sermon, they will act on it. Or in more colloquial terms, their life will be changed, right? You ever heard that before? Here's the problem. We have confused information transfer with transformation. Hear me, teaching is important. Information is actually really important. If it wasn't, Jesus wouldn't have spent a lot of his life teaching. But teaching alone is not enough. We have to both be people of information, and we also have to be people of action. Jesus understood our propensity, our human nature, to take in information but not necessarily act on it, even within his first century context. And so that's why he spends the end of his sermon giving us three warnings as to what happens when we do not act. And he does so with these three warnings, and I'll give them to you here. The first one is the warning of the Broadway. This is found in verses 13 through 14. The second warning is the warning of the false prophet, which is found in verses 15 through 22. And then the last one, or excuse me, 23, the last one is the warning of the shaky foundation, which is found in verses 24 through 27. So we're going to start off here with this first warning of Jesus, this first warning about what happens when we know something, but we don't act on it. Jesus says, picking up in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those that enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those that find it are few." For those of us that maybe grew up in some sort of church context, when we hear this verse, our immediate emotion is like fear or FOMO of heaven, like FOMO, fear missing out on heaven. Anybody feel that? That was real for me. Okay. That's our first immediate thought when we think of this scripture verse. A lot of the times it was taught as uh, the Christian life is one that's really hard, and therefore it means that we can have no fun. 
Anybody else taught that? That's how I was taught it, okay? Here's the thing. I don't think that that accurately reflects what Jesus is telling us here, even though he does have some pretty strong words. First of all, we need to consult Scripture broadly, okay? When we're reading this passage, we have to consult Scripture broadly to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus says in John 14, 6, and this theme is echoed throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, and throughout Scriptures. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. When we take this verse in context with John chapter 14, verse 6, we understand that Jesus himself is the narrow gate. There is no other person No other worldview, no other belief that can lead you to life. The only thing that can do that is Jesus. That's what makes the gate in and of itself narrow. That Jesus is the only person that helps you enter life. A brief aside on this. We know that Jesus is the only one that can lead to life because he's the only person in human recorded history to have predicted his death predicted his resurrection three days later to have died in the exact manner he predicted and risen exactly in the same manner that he predicted. More on that on Easter Sunday. I won't steal Alex's content. But that's how we know that Jesus is the only way to life. So Jesus here is saying you have two choices. You can either choose the broad gates of this world, which are money, power, possessions, pleasure, all the things we've actually been talking about throughout this sermon series on the Mount, or you can choose me. You can choose the narrow gate. You can choose Jesus. But despite this explanation and this understanding of a passage that has a lot of misconceptions surrounding it, I'm still left with two major questions, okay? The first one is this. Why does the path have to be hard, Like, I want it to be easy, right? I don't want the path to be hard. Let's address that here. As we've learned in this sermon series on the Mount, usually the right choice is not always the easy one. We've learned over the course of this series that anger is much easier than forgiveness. We've learned that lust is much easier than respecting other image bearers of God. We've learned that pettiness is much easier than suspending judgment. We've learned that apathy is much easier than extending the love that an individual may or may not deserve. We've learned that hating one's enemy is much easier than loving them. The broad way, if we're being honest, is much easier than the narrow way is. To borrow a Yodaism or a Yoda way of speaking, hard it is to act on Jesus' teachings, right? Hard it is. Eugene Peterson, uh, in his version of the scriptures called The Message, he paraphrases verses 13 through 14 this way. He says, don't look for shortcuts to God. Ooh, I love that. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. 
to go back to Neil Postman's information to action ratio, it is easy to do nothing with information that has been given to us. It's much harder to do something on the things that we know to act. Here is the good news, though, because some of you are like, oh, man, it is hard. Okay? Here's the good news, though. Jesus's narrow road is hard, but it's also paradoxically easy, and here's why. He promises to walk with us. So just a few verses earlier, we see in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus actually promises to take care of us. He says, I feed the birds, I clothe the lilies, how much more will I take care of you? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. I give good gifts to my children. He promises to give good gifts to us. In Matthew 11, or excuse me, verses 29 through 30 later on, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for yourselves, your souls. And here it is. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus does not promise us that the narrow road will be easy, but he does promise to walk with us on the road. The second thing that bothers me about this passage, if I'm being honest, is that Jesus says few will enter the kingdom of God. And as a pastor, that's really worrisome because uh, my whole life is about many entering the kingdom of heaven, right? And so, again, we have to look at this particular text in the context of Scripture broadly. And when we do so, we realize that Jesus is using a hypothetical hyperbolic statement here. He's using a rhetorical device, okay? He's trying to get our attention to help us wake up, to not make some assumptions about the decisions we've made. So when we examine this within scripture broadly, we see in Matthew chapter 8 verses 11 that many from the east and the west will come into the kingdom. Jesus says many will come. Later on in Matthew chapter 20, we see Jesus describing his death and resurrection and all that will take place as a result of his healing power. And we learn that Jesus liberates many from captivity. We see over and over again in the Gospels the word many being used when it talks about those entering the kingdom of God. And so if that's the case, I'm led to believe here, along with lots of different thinkers and scholars, that Jesus is using this statement to force us to ask the question, am I on the narrow path? Am I part of the few or am I a part of the many? He's asking us to wake up a little, to not make some assumptions about the decisions that we've made, to ask ourselves have I made the easy decision here? Do I find myself taking a shortcut from the narrow path onto a broad one? He's using a rhetorical device here to say, examine yourself. Take stock of the decisions you've made. So Jesus warns us against the Broadway, and then now we're going to transition as he warns us about the false prophet. You know, in our context, the word prophet's not one that we use really ever, right? That's not a normal word in our vocabulary. And so it could be better understood, this passage could be better understood as false preacher, false pastor, false teacher, 
false writer or false podcaster within our context. Jesus says in these verses, he says, watch for these false prophets. And then he gives us a guide in the form of three tests to discern a false prophet from a true prophet. So we're going to go through these tests together. I know I'm going fast, but we got to get through this, okay? So first test, here we go. The life test. Jesus says, picking up in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Eugene Peterson, in his uh, translation of the mes- called The Message, puts it this way. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off somewhere or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. Woo, that's rough. (laughs) Jesus here is saying, be watchful. When you come across preachers, teachers, pastors, podcasters, writers, you need to ask yourself some questions. Does this pastor steward money, sex, and power well? What does this pastor's marriage look like? What's their family like? Are they in community? Are they just a lone ranger? Does this podcaster or writer, does this preacher submit to the local authority of a church? To anyone? Or are they just off on their own? See, vines produce grapes, Thistles produce thorns. A ministry built on charisma alone will only produce a broken marriage. It will only produce loneliness. It will only produce a disproportionate relationship with money. You fill in the blank. Look at their fruit. The first test when it comes to discerning between a false and a true prophet is the life test. The second one is the test. Excuse me, the teaching text. Say that five times fast. The teaching test. Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Uh, Many of times when pastors preach this, uh, they are preaching it with a context of the many versus the few or those that are in that are out or those that are getting saved versus not saved. And I want to clarify this passage as well as the next one that we're going to discuss is still dealing with the false prophet here. So the audience here is not saved versus not saved. The audience here is that false prophet. That's the person that we're taking a microscope to here. So when it says, will of my father, those words that are used there are the same words that we understand the word from John chapter 1. So the word, or in other words, the teachings of Jesus. Therefore, when conducting the teaching test, the life test, then the teaching test, you need to ask the question, is the prophet teaching the content of Jesus? Are their teachings in alignment with scriptures, specifically the words of Jesus in the New Testament? 
1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul addresses Timothy, a fellow pastor, and says to him, watch your life and your teachings closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In Acts 17, verses 10 through 11, Paul and Silas finished teaching to the Berean peoples, and they say they received Paul's teachings with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if what Paul had to say was true. See, if Paul instructs Timothy to watch his teachings, if the Bereans even examine Paul's teachings, who's supposed to be one of the greatest pastors in all of church history, then how much more should Alex, Amanda, and I, and whoever else comes up to this stage to speak, examine their teachings? How much more should you, as a community, examine the scriptures to ensure that our teachings are in line with Jesus? Here's the deal. As hard as this pastoral team works, and I promise you, we work so hard to steward the teachings of Jesus well. As hard as we work, we will not always get it right. That's actually the beauty of the church, that us as a pastoral team, we submit to you as a congregation to, like the Bereans, take our teachings and examine them in light of Scripture, to hold us accountable, test, I give you permission, the Scriptures give you permission, but I give you permission, test what we have to say in light of the Scriptures, and then give us grace when we are in need of learning. The test goes beyond just Alex and Amanda and I, because we live in a globalized society where we hear teachings from people all the time. The next time you're listening to a podcast or reading a book or even listening to another teacher, you need to ask yourself a very simple but profound question. Is this person's teachings moving my heart to obey Jesus's teachings? You, as a community member, as a Jesus follower, need to learn to know the scriptures, Jesus's words, so well that you can spot something off from a mile away. Because false prophets are like wolves in sheep's clothing. They're hard to spot. So first, we have the life test. Then we have the teaching test. And then finally, we have the relationship test. Jesus says in verses 22 through 23, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, these two verses... We're not talking about who's in and who's out. We're not talking about salvation here. Jesus is actually addressing those who claim to speak on behalf of him and actually do not have a relationship with him. See, as important as good fruit is about having a good character, as important as teaching the scriptures, as teaching Jesus's words correctly are, Jesus says it's not enough. You have to have an intimate, a real relationship with me. See, knowing about God and knowing him are not the same thing. A true prophet knows him in a very intimate way. You know, uh, prior to becoming a full-time pastor, I would hear about pastoral 
uh, failures, whether those be moral failures, financial failures, uh, whether those be just mismanagement, whatever that looks like. And I would think, I would never do that. No way. Not me, God. I would not do that. Count me out, right? And in my very short time being a full-time lead pastor of a church, uh, I have heard story after story after story after story after story of pastoral failure. And I have to admit, my response is no longer, thankfully, my response is no longer, Lord, I'd never do that. It's God, help me. Jesus, may that never be me. And here's why I know I am one simple, very small decision from taking a shortcut from the narrow road to the broad one. All it takes is one little moment when I decide not to follow the ways of Jesus and my own vain, selfish ambition for me to say, oop, I took a shortcut. In the words of biblical scholar Scott McKnight, when confronted with this passage as a pastor, my first inclination should be to turn the text into a mirror, to ask myself, does my public life, as admirable as it may look, reflect my private life? Do I do Jesus' teachings as a pastor? Not just in a public sphere, but in a private one. I know for many of you, a sermon like this uh, may be a little triggering because at some point in life, you've had a pastor or a leader or a mentor who has not had a public life that has been in sync with their private one. And they have caused you to lose trust in the church, lose trust in pastors generally, and maybe even lose trust in God. And for that, my heart hurts deeply. It hurts not only for you and the situation. It hurts not only for that church community. It hurts for the pastor. It hurts for the effect that message has had on those that don't know Jesus. See, Jesus knows the destruction that can be caused by false prophets. That's why his rebuke here is so strong and why his warning to us is so clear. He says, test their life, test their teachings, and test their relationship. In response to a passage like this, uh, the temptation, I think, can be uh, to become even more critical or cynical than we already are. Because if we're real, like that's already here, right? That's in existence. Uh, we are not in short of cynicism in our current day. And although I do think there are moments in which we do need to call out false prophets and false leaders, Jesus simply, his instructions here is, are to watch for them. He doesn't tell us what to do. He says, watch. Although wolves in sheep's clothing, right, as he referred to them here, although wolves in sheep's clothing are hard to spot, Jesus says you can spot them. He gives us a power here. He says you don't have to sit idly by as the warning signs blare. You don't have to simply sit there and watch, intake the information. You can be alert, 
You can pay attention. See, notice when someone is starting to fail the life test, when they begin to fail the teaching test, when they begin to fail the relationship test, take notice, be watchful, don't let your guard down. See, in being a watchful community, we not only love and protect ourselves, but we love and protect the community of people, of Christ followers sitting here, and we actually protect the pastors, preachers, and teachers. Because when we help our pastors catch the warning signs, catch the moments when we start to deviate from the life test, the teaching test, or the relationship test, We help them correct their step. We hold our leaders, our pastors accountable because we are watchful. Jesus does not instruct us to be watchdogs, but he says be a watchful community. This leads us to our last warning, the warning of the shaky foundation. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me. In verses 24 through 27, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, action, will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does nothing, does not act on them, sits idly by, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and great was the fall of it. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way in the message. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. The Sermon on the Mount is not an incidental addition to your life. It is not a homeowner improvement to help your standard of living. It is foundational to who you are. Build a life on that. The meaning of these verses is pretty clear. Build your life on the Sermon on the Mount. Build your life on Jesus. Build your life on his teachings. What is the foundation of your life? Is it Jesus? Or have you built your life on something else? Have you built your life on a pastor who's a work in progress? Have you built your life on a church that will inevitably at some point in time fail you or hurt you? Have you built your life on a job? Have you built your life on possessions? Have you built your life on a political party? Have you built your life on the American dream? Or have you built your life, your house, on the firm foundation, the only thing that will stand the test of time, that will stand those storms? Jesus. 
in this last and final warning, to summarize the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, it's not simple enough to hear my words. You must act on them. You must build your life on me. See, all three of these warnings, the warning of the Broadway, the warning of the false prophet, and the warning of the shaky foundation concern what happens when we hear something, but we don't put it into practice. Our spiritual practice is a really simple one this week because this whole sermon is based on action, right? You know, over the course of the Sermon on the Mount, there have been several moments when I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit to act on the practice that was given at the end of the sermon in response to Jesus' teachings. And like I would assume many of you, life gets busy, right? Or I forget, or it just doesn't seem that important as I move on into my week. So my challenge to you is this. As you think back on all of the sermons that we've done in the Sermon on the Mount, or maybe there's just one in particular that stands out to you, where you felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit to act in that moment and you did not. Now is the time to say this week, whatever that thing was that the Holy Spirit prodded on my heart to do, the way in which he asked me to begin slowly orienting my life more towards him, that's the thing I'm going to do this week. So as you take a few moments to sit here and reflect on what that thing may be, we're going to hold that thing in our heart and in our head as we take some time to recite our confession as we do every week and confess to Jesus our lack of inaction. Because if I'm being honest, there's a whole lot of things in my life that the Lord has asked me to do or I feel convicted about or I know I could do better and I've just not taken that step. And so as we pray this prayer together, keep that moment in your mind. And as we take communion and go into a time of response, when you spend some time, ask Jesus to simply help you. Lord, help my inaction. Lord, help me to take the information that you have given me time and time again and to put it into practice once more. to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.